Well, it's great to worship with you guys and to hear the songs of the saints crying out to the resurrected king and, and all that that means. It's a great song of what just kind of hits the tip of the iceberg of all that the rex- resurrection means for us today. And uh, just praying through this week, uh, what text to focus on in um, in pondering and celebrating the resurrection, and I couldn't get Revelation chapter 1 um, off of my mind, and so we're going to look at uh, especially 12 through 18, but we're going to read verses 1 up to that point um, as well today. So uh, I'll have the text in front of us, and if you want to stand with me today as we read The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstand, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and in eyes like a flame, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, 
and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. This is our word from the Lord this morning. Let's go ahead and have a seat. In Matthew chapter 16 and in Mark chapter 8, we have the account of Jesus going with the disciples to northern Israel to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's part of one of the stops when you go on an Israel tour that we head to. It's the mouth of the river Dan. It's a beautiful just paradise, a wonderful place uh, to read the account and to worship the Lord. It's uh, in the midst of broken down temples to the goat god Pan that the Romans worshipped. Uh, it's just an incredible place. The gates of hell spring up there out of a cliff, and it's where Jesus says that the, the truth of who Jesus is, the gates of hell, will not prevail. It's an awesome part of the tour, but it's there that Jesus asks the disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So what are you guys hearing on the street? What's the word out there? Who do men say that I am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, you know, we know, of course, that Herod thought maybe Jesus was John the Baptist, reincarnated, uh, coming after him, you know. Uh, they thought maybe it was Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet. Of course, Jesus was, was always weeping and was tenderhearted and compassionate. Uh, maybe Jesus is just one of the prophets. You know, so people are just kind of saying, you're a good guy. You know, you're, something, you're above average. You've got some miraculous stuff that you're able to do. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a pretty good word going on out there. People like you pretty much. Um, but then Jesus looks to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? It's been said that that is really the most important question you'll ever answer, that mankind will ever answer. And it's a question that's asked to you today here in Prineville in 2018, you know, 2,000 years later, the question is still asked, and it's really, it's asked by Jesus, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a man, you know, just, he dwelt at some time, there's radical historical evidence that he indeed was a historical figure in human history? Was he just a prophet, some sort of guru? Is he up there on the same level as the Rajneesh, you know, or Muhammad? You know, who is this guy, Jesus, to you? It's been said that how you answer that question will determine where you spend all of eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? On Resurrection Sunday, it's a great time to ask that question. What does the resurrection mean? How does the resurrection inform this answer to this question? Well, Peter, who had been spending time with Jesus, he'd watched Jesus deal with people, love people, tender-hearted, compassionate. We've seen him do the works of the miraculous, healing people, casting out demons, multiplying loaves and fishes, raising people from the dead, walking on water, calming the storms. They'd witnessed all of that. When you read Mark's account, 
Mark chapter 8 comes right after just miracle after miracle after miracle. Multitudes and thousands of people are following Jesus. So when Jesus says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Peter, just without missing a beat, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It means you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one we've been waiting for. And I also recognize that you are more than just a man. You're actually the son of God, which later on in the book of John, we see that's why Jesus was crucified, because he was claiming to be the son of God. And to the Jews, that was the same thing as saying, I am God. Jesus claimed to be God. They killed him because he claimed to be God. And Peter says, you are You are God. And Jesus answers Peter and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, many times on Easter Sunday, one of my favorite teachings to do is to just go through the incredible evidence that Jesus rose from the dead validating everything he said, vindicating all the uh, claims of his messiahship and of his deity. And I love studying the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. It is incredible evidence. But, you know, like Peter says, uh, is told by Jesus, it's not through just flesh and blood and reasoning and point, counterpoint, and finally the evidence lands on Jesus rising from the dead, and that's why you would come to believe it. It's not through flesh and blood and by the works of men that you come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's by the work of the Father in heaven. And it's our prayer as we get into the Word of God that that He would reveal it to you today. From the youngest in this room to the oldest, that you would have revelation that He's not a mere man, He's not a mere prophet. But he's the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Son of the living God. As C.S. Lewis came to determine, after he was a skeptic, after the last thing C.S. Lewis wanted to do in the world was to become a Christian. Christians drove him crazy. In fact, when he eventually got born again, he says, I was the, I was the most hard-hearted person getting born again. It was the last thing I wanted to do. But the Holy Spirit was working in me and was showing me everything. And I couldn't help but say... You are the Christ. I was the hardest boiled of all atheists and skeptics, he says. But I couldn't argue with the evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so every thousands of years, for thousands of years, inquirers come and they examine the evidence for the resurrection and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Journalists like uh, Chicago Times reporter Lee Strobel You know, his wife ended up becoming a Christian. He was so angry and so ticked off at her that he used all of his investigatory journalist skills to go and to just prove that she's wrong. Let's get over this phase. Let's get back to the married life as we've wanted it. And as he did the research, he came to find Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And now I've got to follow him. There's a great movie uh, called The Case for Christ. It's, It's based on his book. It's on Netflix Uh, Right now, you should watch it and hear his testimony. Other incredible lawyers like Dr. Frank Morrison or Royal Professor of Law at Harvard University, Dr. Simon Greenleaf 
or Thomas Arnold, who was formerly a professor of history at rugby and of Oxford. These are men that have gone and they've, they've been critics, they've been skeptics, and as they were fair inquirers, they come to realize Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and our lives were created to serve him and to know him and to love him and to tell his story to the entire world. When Thomas Arnold, who was that professor of history at Rugby and later Oxford, when he viewed the evidences of the empty tomb, the numerous appearances of Jesus, the change in the disciples uh, from cowards to bold proclaimers of Jesus, when he looked at the authenticity of the records and then the testimony of 2,000 years of church history, he would end up writing down, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So as we examine the resurrection, as we look at the resurrection today, we will find that it is the great sign. It's the sign. Jesus himself said, you want a sign? Here's the sign. As Jonah was in the belly of the earth, of the, in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three di- days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He was speaking of the resurrection. I've begun reading. It's taking me a couple years of off and on reading. And on a road trip yesterday, I just powered through reading this book out loud to my wife. Uh, It's called I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus by Professor George Eldon Ladd from Fuller Seminary. And I'm going to quote him later, but in the preface of the book, a man named Michael Green from St. John's College uh, wrote from Nottingham in 1975. I have to mention that because it's like he he was a contemporary of Robin Hood. Um, But uh, in, in 1974, he writes in the preface of this book, at the heart of Christianity is a cross. And one of the most significant things about it is that it is an empty cross. Christians down the ages have been sure that this shameful death on the gallows was not the last word about Jesus. He rose from the tomb and triumphed over death. This was the belief that turned heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi into courageous witnesses and martyrs of the early church. This was the one belief that separated the followers of Jesus from the Jews and turned them into the community of the resurrection. You could imprison them, flog them, kill them, but you could not make them deny their conviction that on the third day he rose again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the cornerstone of Christianity. And so we have in our Revelation text today, the writings of John the Apostle, John the Revelator. This old gray-haired saint had been persecuted for the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Under the reign of, of a Roman emperor, he was banished, put into exile on the island of Patmos, He would see torture of many different kinds. He would be the only apostle who would not die a martyr's death. Although for the testimony of the risen Jesus, he would be boiled alive in a vat of hot oil. 
banished, tortured, imprisoned. And as he began to be older and seasoned and watch all of his friends die for the testimony of the Lord Jesus, no doubt he began to ponder, you know, we sort of made this all up, didn't we? Um, this, this whole lie about Jesus rising from the dead, we, we took it a little too far. Everybody's dead. I should probably just come out, you know, with a New York Times article that just say, it was all a joke. Chill out. But no, even John the Revelator, after watching all of his friends die for the testimony of the risen Jesus, he himself would say, it's true. I can't deny it. Torture me, kill me, banish me, whatever. But it's true, so much so that, you know what? I've had another revelation of him risen, and I'm going to write it, and I'm going to spread that testimony as well. John the Revelator, it's special to hear his account because he was a disciple that would lay with Jesus and recline with him. He writes the, the Gospel of John where he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We just had this special relationship. Just an adoration there. He would, he would recline on Jesus at the table. <clears throat> he would witness Jesus at the cross. Speak to Mary, his mother, and say, Mary, behold your son, John, and John, behold your mother, Mary. Take care of my mom, John. And in Revelation, he sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Uh, don't worry, I know sometimes the Bible's hard to understand. Uh, the book of Revelation actually explains itself quite a bit. The lampstands will be explained in just a little bit. So don't be like, lampstands, seven of them, I'm already checked out. You know, um, Later on, we'll see what those were. But in the midst of the seven lampstands, there's one like the Son of Man. Already today, you've probably heard that phrase. I know I've heard it come out of my mouth quite a few times, the Son of Man. Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man. Here, John the Revelator sees one like the Son of Man. Who is this Son of Man? Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, we see uh, the Son of Man is a prophecy of the one who's going to come and he's going to rule in power over the world and over the nations. And Daniel has a vision in Daniel 7, 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, who is the father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus refers to himself or John refers to Jesus and it's the son of man, he's referring to Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, the one who will come in power from heaven and will rule with great glory over all the nations and languages and tribes and tongue of the earth. And so in this revelation, John looks and he sees just this glorious figure that the prophets spoke of. And, and it's just kind of a neat description that we see here. John sees that he was clothed with a garment down to his 
feet. And so the clothing that Jesus wears here shows that he's a person of great dignity and authority. Long garments back in the day were only worn by those who didn't have to work much. Uh, They were a picture of great status and great authority. So John looks up and he sees just this glorious man. He looks like the the one from Daniel chapter 7. He's got this robe of one with great status and great authority. He's girded about the chest with a golden band. When you read Daniel, when you read the prophets, just the heavenly figures had golden bands around their chest. Uh, In verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. In Daniel 7, uh, if you go back to verse 9, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And so we see this uh, the, the ancient of days, who's God the Father, we see the Son of Man, we see the, the Son of God. They both have this white hair, white like pure wool. And interesting, you know, maybe we're seeing glory just shining from behind them, where, you know, we've seen pictures in film where just there's so much glory that just kind of everything around seems to be glowing. Maybe just in the glory, this is how they look. They've got a pretty sweet white fro going on. Uh, they got the got the curls, you know, white like wool, and uh, and it certainly is glorious. Charles Spurgeon says, when we see in this picture his head and hair white as snow, we understand the antiquity of his reign. Uh, his rule is is ancient. Uh, a writer, pastor uh, named Clark says, this is not only an emblem of antiquity, but it was evidence of his glory. For the whiteness of splendor of his head and hair doubtless proceeded from the rays of light and glory which encircled his head and darted from it in all directions. So we're just, we're getting a bit of a new picture of Jesus here, aren't we? I know many of us going into Easter Sunday, you know, we're we're thinking of Jesus kind of with the artwork that we've seen and the cartoons that we've seen. And we've got, you know, this Aryan man, you know, (laughs) this total white dude with like blue eyes. And it's like, that's what I've seen in Sunday school class since I was a kid. So, you know, but, but an encouragement today is to look at Jesus as John the Revelator, to look at Jesus in his glory and in his splendor. We see as we move on in the text that his eyes were like a flame of fire. We see this multiple times in the book of Revelation when Jesus is seen. His eyes are, are like this fiery flame displaying the fire of searching, penetrating judgment. Most believe that this is speaking of he, he is a God who is judging uh, sin. And going into Revelation, he's about to pour his wrath out upon a sinful world. But he has these eyes of fire searching, penetrating, ready to judge. In verse 15 of revelation 1 his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace this is an emblem of his stability and his permanence brass was considered to be the most durable of all metallic substances or compounds in the time later on in the book of revelation we read that he treads out the wine press of the wrath of god 
And that at the end of time, he's going to tread out the, the sinners of this world who've rejected him. He will crush them with his feet through the cauldron of warfare and judgment. And it says that later on in the book of Revelation that his robe will be stained with the blood of those that he is judging. You know, today we're in the age of grace. Today we're in the age of the gospel going forth and the proclamation of salvation. And anyone who hears may believe in the Lord Jesus. But there will come a time where that age of grace is over and people have hardened their heart against the Messiah and they've rejected him. And now the wrath of God pours hot upon him. And so we see that those feet of fine brass will trot out the winepress of the wrath of God later on in the book of Revelation. We see that his voice is the sound of many waters. Those of us that have been to the various rivers and waterfalls, we can begin to get a sense of the, the volume and the power that are in those large waterfalls. Um, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls or, um, or to these big bodies of water, you can just imagine when he speaks, the power and the roaring uh, in various places, his voice is described as a trumpet sound. In various places, the sound of thunder. In various places, the sound of many waters. Just the powerful current. In verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And later on, as you read, the right hand with the seven stars speaks of the seven leaders of those churches that the letter is written to. We see out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, Barnes notes that John didn't necessarily see a sword coming out of Jesus's mouth, but listen, he heard him speak. He felt the penetrating power of his words, and they were as if a sharp sword proceeded from his mouth. In Hebrews, we read that the word of God is, is sharper than a double-edged sword. And it does that surgical work of discerning between the bone and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so we have Jesus. It's the same Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. And here he is resurrected in his glory. And he is the same Jesus that always spoke forth the word of God that is that sharp double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. Spurgeon says, there is no handling this weapon without cutting yourself, for it has no back to it. It is all edge. The word of Christ, somehow or another, is all edge. And today you're going to feel that. We've already read a lot of scripture. We're going to read a lot of scripture. And as that word of God comes, it cuts. It goes to the heart. It dives in deep and it discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. In verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. In the Bible, when we read of prophets having visions like this, like every time they fall down like dead or in a deep sleep or slumber, um, they, just, they just go down for the count. I mean, they are witnessing something so glorious and so tremendous Human strength fails them. And this is, you read the book of Daniel, and Daniel falls down, just falls into a deep sleep, and the angel Gabriel puts his hand on him and raises him up. And here we see John sees the glory of Jesus. He's resurrected in his glory, in his purity, his holiness, his ability to judge and search the deep things. And he falls down as dead. And I just love this in verse 17. He lays his right hand on me lays his right hand on me. 
Guys, this is where our comfort should always come from. The nail-pierced hand of Jesus. That nail-pierced hand, still there, after, after the amount of time that John had, had been through without seeing Jesus, that nail-pierced hand still is on him, comforting him. And the words come out, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. This is a phrase that we read of a lot in chapter 1 and in the book of Revelation. There's something special about him being able to say that. I can't say that. I don't know about you. We got some gray hairs in this room. You're close. But I was there when the world was created and I'll be there when it's gone. So, you know, like, like none of us can say that. I, I'm the first and I'm the last. And yet, our God is able to say it. When he says it in Isaiah, in 44, 6, at the end of the verse, he says, I'm the first and I'm the last. And what does that mean? Besides me, there is no God. Okay, so let's go back to the question to Peter. Who do you say that I am? Do you say to Jesus today, you are the first and you are the last? Besides you, there is no God. Later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, Jesus says, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This, this is the probably fourth or fifth time in the book of Revelation we read of this. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. Of course, in the Greek, Alpha is the first letter of the alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the alphabet. Essentially, Jesus is saying in his resurrected glory, in his victory, I am the A to the Z. And I am everything in between. I'm all in all. I'm alpha. I'm omega. I'm beginning. I'm end. I'm it. I'm the God of all eternity. I'm the Lord of all eternity. Past, present, and future. Is that what you say to, to Jesus when he says, who do you say that I am? You are the Lord of all eternity. You are God. There's no other God. But you are the A to the Z and everything in between. Reminds me of the Centrum Silver vitamin commercial, you know. It's the A to Z, you know, the, all those vitamins. And in verse 18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. This is just what I couldn't get out of my heart this week in thinking of the text for this Sunday. I am he who lives. One of my favorite songs in high school when I was a worship leader was from the book of Job. For I know my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Even when in my flesh is destroyed, I will too have a resurrection and I will see God because I know my Redeemer lives. Jesus today in 2018, he's appearing to us in the book of Revelation and he's saying, I'm alive. And we can say with Job, I know my Redeemer lives. 
He is he who lives. Present tense. He's alive. And then he says, I was dead. Past tense. I was dead. And reading a Spurgeon sermon, he has nothing to do with death now. As far as he is personally concerned, that is all over. He's dealt with death. He's done with death. You see that the words are in the past tense. I am he who lives and was dead. And bear with me while I quote from Spurgeon here. When our Lord used to John the words was dead and applied them to himself, he meant that he performed the crucial part of the atonement. The very central point of the atonement was death. There was no way of making atonement for sin except by shedding the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There must be life to atone for sin, and that life sacrificed. Therefore, Christ was dead. It was no dream, it was no delusion, no sleep, no swoon, no coma. And I mention that because the critics of the resurrection say that Jesus never actually died on the cross, but he just fainted from exhaustion. And when they put him into the tomb, the cool weather from the tomb just kind of woke him up and he was able to bust out of his burial claws and throw the two-ton stone away and go running and looking for all of his followers, okay? But Jesus' death was just that. It was a death. It was no dream, no delusion, no sleep, no swoon, no coma. Even Pontius Pilate had the test done where the spear was shoved up into Jesus' chest and out of his chest came blood and water. That is medical examiners have said that is evidence of the collapse of the heart cavity he was dead though it was not possible for a blessed and glorious savior to be held by the bonds of death yet he was dead this meant further that christ's work was ended and done with there are some people who talk about presenting the perpetual sacrifice of the mass There is perhaps no grosser blasphemy under heaven than the idea that we can offer up the body and blood of Jesus again. Once and for all, Jesus died. But he is not a dead Christ now. Pictures of Christ dead, crucifixes, and all things of that sort may to some extent represent what he was, but they do not represent what he is. I should not care to have hanging up in my house the picture of a dead friend representing him as he looked when he was dead, especially if he'd been raised to life again. I would rather wait for his portrait till I could get one of him alive. For the picture of a dead man is not that man's likeness at all. And finishing up, he writes, Spurgeon tells the story, I saw in a friend's house the other day the likeness of a minister... And I said, oh dear, how ghastly he looks. The gentleman replied, I'm told that that photograph was taken after he was dead. Well then, I said, put it away at once, or I'll pray that you put it away. This is not the likeness of the man at all, for the man was gone before it was taken. You guys, we don't wear, as New Testament Christians, a crucifix around our neck with a Jesus still on it because we remember Jesus not as having died and continuing to die, but that he is was dead, past tense, 
and is alive now forevermore. It is clearly in the scripture that the death that he died, he died once for all. When he was upon the cross, he said, it is finished. It's done. And so when we take communion, we don't kill Jesus on the altar every time we take communion. We do it in remembrance of him, just as he said. We remember that he was dead. And we rejoice that he is alive. In Romans chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. What was the end? What was, the, what was to the end the purpose of Jesus' death and rose again? That he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And so Jesus goes on in our revelation to say, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus has the credentials of the resurrection and he lives to never die again. The victory that Jesus won over sin and death was a permanent victory. He didn't rise from the dead just to die again. He rose from the dead to live forevermore. 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 13, verse 4, that even though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives now by the power of God. And the application to us in 2 Corinthians is, for we are also weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. The New Testament glorious story is that Jesus' death is applied to us through faith to where we've died also. The old man dies. But Jesus didn't just stay dead. He rose from the dead. And so too, we also will walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 tells us that. And in Romans chapter 6 verse 9, it says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And if you want the whole context, looking at Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the question is asked, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? You know, many of us, actually believe this oh man you know it seems like the where where sin abounds grace super abounds so i can just just sin like crazy and whoo grace like crazy whoo party shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound Ah, certainly not that's you know that's paul's little certainly not there He's going to say, it's not even possible, people. If you've been born again, this is not a possibility. How shall we who died to sin, remember, because if we put our trust in Jesus, we died to sin. How shall we live, practice, 
continue any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Guys, the glorious good news of the gospel is that by faith, this this incredible process by grace through faith happens to us. Where we die with Jesus and we live with Jesus. His spirit comes in us in the same uh, same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. He comes into us and he he gives us newness of life and a power to live with him. And so the Romans passage goes on to say that now we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Remember that on Resurrection Sunday. I reckon myself alive to God. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and I clap and I celebrate that Jesus did it, there's something even more that he did. He did it for me and in me as well. He dwells in me now and now I walk in resurrection power. I walk in newness of life. I have victory. Behold, I am alive forevermore. That has application for us as Christians. 2,000 years later. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 24 says, because he continues forever, there's an unchangeable priesthood. There's a big long story there. Don't get confused on the whole priesthood stuff. Essentially what he's saying is in the Old Testament, there were different priests all the time and they would go in and they would offer sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats. And they would offer a sacrifice for themselves. And then they would retire and then the next guy would come in and he'd offer sacrifices for his own sin and for the sins of the people and this blood of bulls and goats. And then he would retire and then the next guy would come in, the next guy, the next guy. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus, our great high priest, is better than all of them because he came in in the priestly order of Melchizedek, not Levi. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to offer the blood of bulls and goats to just cover over sin. I'm going to offer my own precious blood to wash away sin. And I'm going to do it once and for all. And there's going to be an unchangeable priesthood from this time on. I'm the last priest. I'm the only priest you need. And because he continues forever, there's an unchangeable priesthood. Now we just have Jesus. And it goes on to say, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. Are you the uttermost here today? We the uttermost. It's been said that Jesus saves to the guttermost. And the uttermost. That's, that's me, you guys. I'm the guttermost. And if you would allow the Lord to show you your sin and how you have transgressed and trespassed against Jesus, you'll, Rory, I'm there with you. Guttermost right here, guttermost. <laughs> Big time sinner. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Well, I wonder what he's doing being alive forevermore. He's praying for you all the time. He's at the right hand of the Father 
Behold, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who offered up himself as a ransom for all. He is, a, he is interceding for you. He is mediating for you. He is your attorney in heaven. And when Satan comes, like he did in the book of Job, and he says, have you considered yours? Look at Rory Rogers. You know what he did this week? Blah, 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 blah. And Jesus just stands up and says, boom. I took care of it. I took care of it. Or, and when we pray, Lord, I'm so stressed out this week. I've got the hardest, this has been the hardest week of my life. I'm just bearing the weight. I'm bearing the burden. And Jesus says, hey, cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. Trust your soul to me as to a faithful creator, because I love to live to pray for you. And he prays for us in the throne room of God. love Romans chapter 8. It starts out with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you feel damned ever? Do you feel condemned ever? Do you just feel like just the devil's on your shoulder just saying, you going to hell? It might be true. You might be going to hell. And in that case, you need to come run into the arms of Jesus because he's a savior. But once you're in the arms of Jesus and he's still there, he's still going to hell. You say, hey, 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 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I walk according to the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead. There's no condemnation now. So rebuke the enemy and he will flee. But later on in the great Romans 8, it says, well, who is he who condemns? It's not Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to pray for you. There's a lot that was won for us on Easter Sunday. There's a whole lot in Christian theology that just the resurrection just, oh, it's so great that it happened in spring, you know, and you got the Easter lilies and the tulips and just everything's coming up because that's just, that's what the resurrection did. The resurrection brought life where there was gloom. And just wrapping up, will you turn to Revelation chapter 5 with me? Just all week, just thinking of Revelation. And I was thinking of chapter 1, and there's this vision that John has of one like the Son of Man and just bright and shining and glory and the voice of many waters and the gold band around his chest. Man, I just love that image of Jesus. It's, it's, it's almost too much for me. It's almost too glorious for me. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see just a bit of another perspective of this resurrected king. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Let me just give you one, one quick possible explanation of what this scroll is scroll was dried parchment paper written on the inside and here we see it had writing on the back as well we see that it was sealed with seven seals and a scroll that was sealed 
represented a legal document of any and all sorts. So uh, wedding agreements, land deeds, these scrolls would be sealed. And in the culture, the more seals a scroll had, the more valuable or important it was. Caesar Augustus's will was found, and it had seven wax seals on it. Of course, it was an extremely important document. Yes. <laughs> These smartphones are so great until they're just not so smart. But we see that it was written on the inside and on the back. It was common for the scroll to have writing on the inside, but it was not too common for a scroll to have writing on its back. One side of the parchment was rougher than the other, so it was difficult to write on the opposite side. Some archaeologists have have looked at this scroll in Revelation chapter 1, tried to determine what it was, and they believe that they figured out that the scroll was some sort of a title deed to a piece of property. You know, when a landowner couldn't pay for his property or on his mortgage, he would have to forfeit his property. And so they would take the title deed and they would write on the back of it the debt that he owed. He would write on the back of it not only the debt, but the time of redemption that he had to get it back. So the price and the time frame, he had to pay off his debt. It was usually seven years. And so some believe that this is a picture of the title deed to planet earth. Jesus lost the title deed back in Genesis chapter 3 when man sinned and rebelled and the whole world was plunged into sin and to darkness. Even in the Gospels, the Satan, the Satan, there's only one, the Satan comes to Jesus and he says, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of this. Jesus doesn't say, well, who are you talking about? My my father created this, and I created this. This is ours. You know, no, he's like, I'm not going to bow down for it. I've got another way to get it back. And so we see that in heaven, perhaps this scroll that, you know, it goes on into the seven sealed judgments in Revelation, but that this scroll that no one else could touch, writing on the back and on the front, seven seals, possibly could be a picture of the title deed to earth. And so here we see that it's in the right hand of the Father. No one can open it. No one's worthy to open it in heaven or in earth and under the earth. And it goes on to say, in verse 4, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders. The number of them was ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are as in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Let's have the worship team come up. It's a bit of a, a new perspective on Easter Sunday, isn't it? This resurrected Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father where He ever lives to make intercession for us. In one view of the resurrected Jesus, John the Revelator sees Him in glory, white hair like wool, fiery eyes, feet like, bra um, like brass, uh, a garment going down to His feet, a golden band around His waist. And in a few chapters, He sees Jesus just in a different light and he sees him as a lamb who has appeared to have been slain you know when we go there as redeemed people of the lord saved by his blood and by his grace we're going to see that aspect of jesus that will remind us of the cost that he paid the price that he paid to save us from our sins that he still appears and to be the lamb that was slain. He bears the marks of his suffering. Just as even in his glory in, in uh, the Gospels, when Thomas, doubting Thomas, said, I won't believe until I put my finger in the holes of his hands and dig it into his side. I just don't, there's no way. People don't rise from the dead. It just doesn't happen. And Jesus says, behold my hands and my feet. Put your finger here and here. Put your finger into my side. He would bear the wounds of his crucifixion. But he would also bear the credentials of resurrection. What he did for us that holy week, you guys. At the cross of Calvary, where he was dead. He was dead. No pulse. Life left him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He would go and he would preach in the belly of hell. He would preach to those that are captive and he would lead captivity captive. At the cross and at the resurrection, he made it possible to come into the presence of God. To be absent from the body would be to be present with the Lord. So he went to Abraham's bosom and he led captivity captive and he, he gave gifts to men. And he appeared here on earth for 40 days. He showed himself alive for 40 days with many infallible proofs, having appeared to many of the brethren. And at one time, even 500 people at one time saw him alive. That is incredible evidence that he really rose from the dead. And today as we close, 
Think about what you've heard today. And think about how do you answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? It's the prayer of us at this church that the Holy Spirit of God would have revealed to you Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first and he'll be the last. There is no other God besides him. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the Messiah. He's the one who willingly came and laid his life down so that his blood would atone for the sins of the world. And that for you today, that Jesus would be the one that you believe in for eternal life. That by faith, even today, you would just receive the work at the cross to atone for your sins. You would just receive by faith and by trusting in him that that is the way that he has provided to wash away your sins. And you would receive today on Resurrection Sunday not only a death with Christ, but also a new life that comes in Christ Jesus. That the same Spirit who rose Him from the dead would come and dwell in you today. And you would just receive today the Spirit of the living God in you and upon you today. Jesus said in John chapter 7 that the day will come when out of men's hearts will flow torrents of living water. No longer will you be dry and empty, but you'll be powerful and courageous and full of life and vigor in your relationship with God and living for His kingdom. And John chapter 7 says this, He spoke about the Holy Spirit who had not yet come because He had not yet been glorified. Well, my friends, today he has been glorified. And let us receive today by faith the Holy Spirit who brings torrents of life and resurrection power into the hearts of all who would believe. Let's receive that afresh today. Maybe for some, for the first time, you would receive life and forgiveness of sins. And maybe some today you come and you've just been like a dry crust of bread. And he wants to come and just give you moisture and vitality, and life by what he's accomplished at the grave. Let's stand together and let's worship the one who was alive and was dead. And behold, he is alive forevermore.